We're in Luke 1.26. It says that it was in the sixth month that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in, Nazar in Galilee called Nazareth. The sixth month means the sixth month after Elizabeth was told, or Zacharias and Elizabeth were told that they would have a son named John. John the Baptist would be his name. So in her sixth month, Gabriel goes to Mary. Now, perhaps the reason for the sixth month, just as it says in the preceding two verses, that she kept uh, herself in seclusion for five months, was to ensure the, the safety of the child and also that at the right time to be able to announce to people, they would see that she was big enough that there actually was a conception and they're not making up lies, it's not a fantasy, it's actually happening and it's happening miraculously. So it's at this point that the angel Gabriel goes to Mary because Elizabeth is about to visit Mary, we'll see that later, and Mary will have a confirmation that just as God did a miracle for Elizabeth, he will do the same and even in a greater sense to Mary. And then it says here, um, the angel Gabriel comes. This is um, one of the rare times that the Bible names an angel. The other, only other angel given a name in the Bible is the angel Michael, such as Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, and in Jude, verse 9. But here we have the name of this angel, Gabriel, sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. The importance of Galilee is that in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah the prophet predicted that a great light would come out of Galilee. Galilee is in the northern part of Israel. It's not, it's not close to Jerusalem. It's not in Judea where most of the action was. The temple was there in Judea in the city of Jerusalem, which was the main city of Judea. It was in the south. But Galilee in the north was not a place where uh, much of the religious activities occurred. And in fact, by this point in history, Galilee became a place that was intermixed with Gentiles. Gentiles, foreigners, came to live in Israel and predominantly in that northern part called Galilee. Now, not only is this uh, unusual, and Isaiah says that it's going to happen like this in an unusual way, but also to a city called Nazareth. Nazareth was not, no major city in Galilee. There could have been any number of other bigger cities of importance that would have been the birthplace of Christ, but God chose here an obscure town, Nazareth, for Christ to be born. He chose an obscure area and an even more obscure town for the Savior to be born. This is different, in other words, than the announcement of John the Baptist. In the preceding paragraphs, we saw that John the Baptist, his announcement was by the angel Gabriel to Zacharias while he was in the temple in Jerusalem, in the region of Judea. A different kind. This is to highlight the fact that Christ has a humble beginning in His humanity, has a humble beginning, and it is intended to bring down the pride of man. As we read in 1 Corinthians 1, God chooses the base and the ignoble things of the world to shame the worldly wise people. He does that because He wants us to recognize that we need to be humble and, and uh, depend on God's grace in full humility, depend on Him. The w wise people of the world don't want to do this, but He's calling on us to do this, to recognize 
that Jesus was willing to be born in this way, in humble circumstances. Verse 27, this is to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. She is a virgin, that is, husband and wife had not come together yet in marriage. They were engaged, and while they're engaged, they don't partake in relations. She still lives in her parents' house, and it's not time for the wedding, and that period has not occurred yet. She's just engaged, and his name is Joseph. So the two of them are virgins or pure, chaste people. They have not come together in marriage. Joseph is identified as being of the descendants of David, and then Mary's name is given. He's of the descendants of David. This is important because from 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that the family of David or the dynasty of David would have an eternal kingdom. Now, this eternal kingdom did not come about because of David or in David himself or in Solomon or in any of the successive kings, even some of the godly kings like Hezekiah and Josiah of the line of David. They did not have a long reign or an eternal reign. It was known from 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 15 that it would be Christ. David understood this in his subsequent prayer. After God revealed to him that he would have an eternal kingdom, David is overjoyed that God would choose, to choose him and his lineage to have Christ to be born and be the son of David. This is why in the New Testament and even in Jewish writings outside of the Bible, they knew that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the son of David, a descendant of David. And this is what is intended here. We're told here that this is happening just as God prophesied from 2 Samuel 7 and throughout all the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In fact, Ezekiel speaks of this eternal kingdom and he says that this righteous branch, David, will come forth. David, and David becomes another name for the Messiah in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is writing a few hundred years, about 400 years after the time of David, but he's speaking of David having an eternal kingdom. And David, therefore, became another name for Christ in Ezekiel 34, 24. Verse 28, And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Here, he has this exclamation of favor toward her. Now, this favor, favor in the Bible, is that which is undeserved, a blessing of God that one does not deserve. Mary did not do anything. She was no one special. She was an obscure woman and uh, engaged to Joseph. She has a lineage, but she doesn't have anything else. And yet the angel pronounces a favor on her, pronounces grace upon her, and says, the Lord is with you. God is with her. This is what we all want. This is what Adam and Eve, in the garden, they had God there until they sinned, and then they were expelled from the garden. And this is what God promises in the tabernacle. The Lord will dwell among you. And the same with the temple. The Lord will dwell among you in the temple. And even Christ promised that He would be with us always, even until the end of the age. And in Revelation 21, God promises that He will dwell among us and be with us forever. This has been the longing of all the people of God, to be with God and to have God be with us. But in this sense, in a miraculous sense, He's about to announce that she's going to, uh, 
be the mother of Christ. And so he says here, the Lord is with you. Now, throughout history, when God says the Lord is with us, this uh, is announcing some special favor of God, some special blessing of God. But she doesn't know yet. And that's why in verse 29 it says, But she was greatly troubled at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. She wondered greatly and was troubled greatly about what this was. Now she's not rejecting it, but she's troubled because the angel up to this point has not said why he has come and what this announcement is. What exactly are the details of your announcement? She doesn't know. And she's troubled because she wants to know. So in her trouble, she thinks about it. She ponders what kind of a greeting this is. What's going to happen to her? It could be good, and it could be bad. And it could be bad in the sense that she might have to go through a lot of strife and affliction. What is it that God wants to do through me? Because she knows that Moses had the favor of God, but he had to go through a lot of trials. Abraham had the favor of God, but he had to go through a lot of trials. So what kind of trial might she have to experience? Or if there is a trial or not, she doesn't know. So the angel Gabriel further says in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He settles her. He gives her some measure of peace because just as Gabriel told Zacharias, do not be afraid, in the same way he says to her, do not be afraid. I'm not coming here to end your life. I'm not coming here to tell you bad news. I'm not coming here for that reason. So don't be alarmed, Mary, for you have found favor with God. This expression, you have found favor with God, again reiterates, just as verse 28 does, hail favored one, that she has found favor with God, not that she has done something to earn the favor of God. God is gracious. The grace starts with God and is revealed to her and she is going to experience it in this way. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. When the scripture says, and behold, behold, and look, or and see, it is an expression based on the Old Testament. Often, announcements of, of, of joy and announcements of surprise, announcements of miracles, announcements of unexpected events are introduced with this expression, behold, or and behold. This is what we have here. She will conceive in her womb, bear a son, and name him Jesus. She's going to conceive, bear a son, and name him Jesus. Now she knows, we'll see later, that this is going to be miraculous, but she doesn't know how exactly it's going to be miraculous. When it says here, bear a son, Jesus, this is what was prophesied in 2 Samuel 7, 14. In Psalm 2, verse 7, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you in the sense that God would have a son who would be an eternal king in, in Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 2, verse 7. So the Old Testament did predict that the son would be born, that the Savior would be a son. He would be a man, in other words. Another example is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto you um, a son is given, unto you a child is, is uh, born, and you shall call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And the government will rest upon his shoulder. Uh, 
and he will have an eternal kingdom. There will be no end to the increase of his government and of his kingdom. This is why it said here, this is a fulfillment of prophecy made by Isaiah 700 years before, but fulfilled in due time. Now the name is Jesus. From Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, 1, 21, it says, You shall call him Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a combination of two words from the Hebrew and then translated into Greek. And to us in English, it comes as Jesus. Jesus is a combination of Yahweh and uh, grace, or, or, or excuse me, salvation, uh, Yeshua. So, Yehoshua would be the form in the Hebrew. And this would mean the Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. That's what Jesus means. This was explained also in terms of a typology or a symbol. In the book of Numbers, Numbers 13, 16, Moses changed Hosea's name to Joshua. Why did Moses change Hosea's name to Joshua? Hosea was... Hosea's given name. His parents named him that. But he changed his name to the name Joshua. The name Joshua actually is the same name as Jesus. Joshua comes into English from Hebrew into English. But the name Jesus comes into English first from Hebrew to Greek, then to Latin, and then into English. And that's why the spelling is different. But the root, the root words are exactly the same. So Jesus' name is the same as Joshua's name. All, both of them come from Hebrew, and both mean the Lord is salvation. So I believe that Moses believed in Jesus. He believed in the coming of Christ, and he named Joshua as a signal or as a symbol that, of this faith. Joshua had this faith, and Moses had this faith. In fact, Hebrews 11.26 says, Moses regarded the reproach of Christ, that is, this ignoble um, kind of spiteful treatment that Jesus would experience, it says, Moses regarded the reproach of Christ greater riches. Moses knew that Jesus would die for his sins. And this is why the name was given. And this is the fulfillment of it right here in Luke 1.31. His name shall be Jesus. Verse 32, He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will be great. Greatness in the Bible is often having to do with their rank and status in society. Sometimes it's because of their wealth and, and also because of their great virtue. And sometimes also because of their rank, they might be a king. And in this case, he is, of course, one of rank. He's the Son of the Most High God. And he is uh, going to sit on the throne of his father, David. He's, he's a king, and he's a man of virtue, of excellence, of moral character. Verse 32 calls him the Son of the Most High. Son of the Most High. God the Father has a son from eternity past. Now, this son does not have anything to do with natural birth, physical things. It has to do with the special, unique relationship that God the Father has with the Son. Before the world was created, the two of them, along with the Spirit, existed. This is why Matthew 20, 
8, 19 and 20 speaks of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They existed from eternity past. So this Son of the Most High, that is the Son of the Father, is who He will be. He will be known as that, called that. Not that He was not that before, but that now with His incarnation, now that He has taken upon flesh, He will be known as that and called that more commonly because He is seen here among many witnesses during His ministry. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. Then the Father, here called the Lord God, will give to Christ the throne of his father David. David is his father, not immediate father, because Jesus has no immediate physical father. He will have Joseph by legal uh, uh, jurisdiction. He will be a legal father in the marriage to Mary, but he will not be his actual father. The actual father will be right here, God the Father, in terms of the miraculous power of God the Father by means of the Holy Spirit bringing a conception, a miraculous conception in Mary, who does not know a man and will not know a man until she is married to Joseph. Now they are engaged. So he will have the throne of his father David. The scriptures are replete in the Old Testament with example after example. Psalm 89, Psalm 132, 2 Samuel 7. Many, many passages that explain that this kingdom will be for a descendant of David, that is for Christ, it will last forever. This is what he's announcing here. Verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. No end to this kingdom. We have spoken of this already. But notice also here, it's over the house of Jacob forever. The house of Jacob is signaling the promise even before the time of David, about a thousand years before, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, the ancestors of the whole nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who became 12 tribes, and that's how the nation was populated from them. So they, here Jesus will have a kingdom over the house or the household the people of Jacob forever. Here is an example, among many biblical examples, that this must mean spiritual Jacob. For not all the descendants of physical Jacob were believers in the Old Testament. And all the descendants of physical Jacob during the time of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry believed in Christ, many of them rejected Christ, many of them persecuted Christ, many of them sought to put Him to death. They were all unbelievers. So when it says here that He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, it means the spiritual house of Jacob, the spiritual descendants of Jacob, which means believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles are together in this verse called Jacob or Israel, and in other words, are truly God's people. This is what God promised to Abraham. God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in Genesis 22:18, he told him again, and in your seed, your descendant, Jesus, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. So all the families or all the nations variously expressed will be blessed. Now how would all the families be blessed? If they believe in Jesus, just as Jewish believers would believe in Jesus for their salvation, Gentiles need to believe in Jesus for their salvation and be truly of the house of Jacob. 34. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? Now she knows that something miraculous is going to have to happen, but she's still curious. We know from the subsequent passage in the subsequent narrative that <coughs> she was not cursed. She did not have a punishment upon her like Zacharias. So her question was a sincere and genuine question. It was not asked out of uh, a critical or skeptical attitude. She, it was asked in curiosity and in simple faith. She just wanted to know, how is this going to happen? Would you please give me more information? is the way that she's implying her question. We know it was not asked in doubt or in skepticism because it says in verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Verse 45 says she believed. On the contrary, on the contrary, in verse 20, when Zacharias asked a similar question, it says in verse 20, And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, the angel says, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. So he was struck with muteness, Zacharias was, because he didn't believe when he asked his question. But Mary did believe, and that's why she was not struck with any kind of punishment even a temporary punishment like Zacharias. So the angel answers and explains. Verse 35, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For, and for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit, and in fact the power of the Holy Spirit, will overshadow her, will overcome her, so that this miracle takes place. This expression, the power and the overshadowing of the Spirit, these are expressions that we find here or there throughout the Scriptures about the work of the Holy Spirit. To hover over, to overshadow, the Holy Spirit was doing that in Genesis 1 verse 2. It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. He was involved with the creation of the world. Now, if He was involved with the creation of the world, that which He created... Can he not produce another miracle and create something that does not exist? He's the one that created everything out of nothing. The Father, Son, and Spirit created all things out of nothing and then created things in the earth to inhabit the earth, to populate the earth, both people and animals and plants and everything that is here. He did that. The Spirit did that. So can he not do this? These are echoes of the miraculous power of the Spirit from the Old Testament, which will happen to her. And not only will the miraculous power of the Spirit overcome her to produce a miracle, notice the Holy Spirit will bring about the birth of this and conception of this holy offspring. Literally, if you see in your Bibles, perhaps a, a footnote will say that it literally says 
the holy thing begotten. Holy begotten thing. Why thing? Perhaps Jesus is called here a thing, not because he's impersonal, he's not a real person, but because his human body is going to be taken upon or assumed by the person of the Son of God. The Son of God is one person with a divine nature and a human nature. The human nature itself is nothing unless a person embodies it or inhabits that body. This is why it is the case. Because in church history and throughout even in our day, there are people who confuse the person and natures of Christ. Some say that Jesus was two persons, a divine person and a human person. And then others say, no, 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 there's one person, but there's only one nature. He's only a divine nature. And then others say, no, no, there's one person, but only one nature, and that is a human nature. He's not divine. So those who misunderstand the true identity of Christ misunderstand in one way or another, but the biblical view, the biblical assertion is Jesus is one person, but two natures. He had, he's the one person that is the Son, and He's got a divine nature, and that's why He's known as Son of God. He always existed with this nature before the world and time began, with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past. And now he also has a human nature from this point onward, from his incarnation. He has a human nature, this one son. He has now taken upon a perfect human nature. This is what's happening here. And this is why he's called the holy offspring. And further, this offspring is holy or this thing is holy because no original sin. From Genesis 3.15, God promised that there would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, Satan, the seed of the woman. It, throughout the Bible, whenever somebody's identified, they are typically identified as being a descendant of a certain man because that's how lineage is, is, uh, is uh, recorded. That's how lineage comes. It comes from the seed of the man. And therefore, people identify lineage through the man that way. But in this case, there will be no lineage from Joseph, from natural gen generation. It will not happen through Joseph that way. That's why he's called holy. And this is also in order to avoid the transference of original sin from Adam, original sin from Adam, going on through all of his descendants, is avoided by this means. So Jesus is born pure, completely innocent, without sin, and he will remain that way forever. This is the reason he's called the holy thing begotten, shall be called the Son of God. Verse 36, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Now, to buttress Mary's faith, to encourage her to believe this and to continue in this faith, she is told that her relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she is six months pregnant. She was barren for her whole life, and now she's beyond childbearing age, 
but she has conceived and she's six months pregnant. And why does any of this happen? Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus had to tell the rich, uh, well, he implied this to the rich young ruler, but told it explicitly to the disciples. In Luke 18, 18 to 30, the rich young ruler asks him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has this exchange with him. He walks away despondent because he was one who owned much property. He did not want to give up his riches. Well, then the disciples are astonished and says, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, what's impossible with men is possible with God. The impossible creation of the universe happened in Genesis 1 by the supernatural power of God. God has the power to recreate other miracles, less significant in scope in terms of physical impact than the initial creation. He can make the sea part, the Red Sea. He can make the Jordan River part. He can make a few uh, fish and bread into uh, food that will be plentiful to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. So he's able to do those things. So he's reminding her that he's able to do the impossible physically. But also, we know he's able to do the impossible spiritually. What man can't do to save himself, God is able to do. And God's even able to use the means, the physical means of bringing about the birth of Christ to carry out impossible outcomes. God is able to do that. And the impossible way of saving ourselves is possible through the birth of Christ, through the miraculous, pure birth of Christ. Mary, hearing this, verse 38, as a woman of faith, she says, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord. Behold, the bond... Look, I'm here. I'm ready and willing to be the vessel of God. I consider myself a bond slave of the Lord. I am the Lord's slave. Let him do to me whatever he wants. Even though she knows that temporarily she will have the reproach of the people. Temporarily, some people finding that she's pregnant without being married to Joseph are going to accuse her. And even people throughout history. For example, Jewish unbelievers have regularly impugned Mary as being the one who had an illicit relationship with a Roman soldier, and that's how she became pregnant. And Jesus is the offspring of an illicit, fornicative relationship between a Roman soldier and Mary. And even some Jews today believe that. And other unbelievers believe, no, no, this, this was not a virgin birth. There was no miracle of the Holy Spirit. No, it happened through natural means liberal Christians, which is an oxymoron, but for the sake of uh, explanation, people who call themselves Christians, but actually are liberal and don't believe many of the things of the Bible, especially the miracles of the Bible, they say, no, 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 Mary, it happened through natural means. Joseph and Mary, or Mary with someone else, but whatever, it happened that way. We don't believe in the virgin birth. No, 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 that's for primitive people to believe, they say. But no, that's not the case at all. Mary knows that she is a vessel of the Lord. And she says, Be it done to me according to your word. Let it happen. I don't care what happens to me. I don't care what people will say about me, both in my generation and in the future. 
I'm going to be a vessel of the Lord. This is the way all true faithful people are. Those who truly love and fear God, they don't care what people say. They will do God's will and be vessels of the Lord. Then the angel departed from her. Let's see now what happens in verses 39 to 45. 39 to 45. Now at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Mary therefore goes to Judah to see Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice here that Mary... At this time, she being able, because Elizabeth is shut up for five months, now six months, she's, she's not going to go out yet, but Mary is able to go out, and she does go out. She goes with haste immediately because she wants to see. She wants to have a confirmation of her faith. She also wants to encourage Elizabeth, and she wants to participate mutually with, with her and others in this joyful news. She enters and she greets Elizabeth. And what happens when Mary greets Elizabeth? The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby, that is John the Baptist, when John the Baptist heard the greeting of Mary, he leaps in the womb. He hears, he understands. God has given the infant John the Baptist in the womb an ability to understand. Verse 42, And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 42, She, Elizabeth, cries out to Mary and says, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit, uh, fruit uh, uh, of your womb. So, this blessing is pronounced, not because in and of themselves, either Elizabeth or Mary are wonderful, great people, but God has endowed them with this grace, with, uh, with the grace of bearing these two sons in this way. And it is the fruit of the womb that will, will be a blessing to many people. Both John the Baptist will and also Mary's, of course, Christ will be uh, a benefit to many people, the Savior of many. 43, And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, Elizabeth is awestruck. Elizabeth is humbled. She is a humble woman because she says, how has it happened that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Notice the faith of Elizabeth. Elizabeth knows that the baby in Mary is her Lord. Not just some human, but her Lord. The mother of my Lord should come to me. How I am privileged to have this happen to me. This shows, this is one verse, for those of you who have skeptics, uh, uh, some, some of you know Jehovah's Witnesses, to witness to them and say, look here, she is called, uh, or he is called my Lord, when he is not even a man yet, not even raised yet, my Lord. She knows of the deity of Christ. 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Elizabeth says to Mary that, Mary, when you came and greeted me and the baby leaped in verse 40, 41, why did he leap? He wasn't leaping because of, of being alarmed. 
he leapt or leaped for joy. For joy. He knew what was going on. He knew what, his, what, what was happening between him and Jesus, between his mother Elizabeth and Jesus' mother Mary. This is proof, this is one evidence that God has the ability to make babies understand, babies believe, and babies go to heaven. And here I, I argue, as the Reformed Confessions of the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 and the Westminster Confession of 1647, both assert that elect infants go to heaven. Elect infants who die in infancy, they go to heaven. This is proof here that it is possible for God to give faith and give a new birth to an infant so that they go to heaven. Further, it says in verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth knows that Mary believed. And this is why she has this, uh, this miraculous activity, miraculous announcement, and this privilege of all the people of the world, all the women of the world, to be the bearer of Christ. And what is it? What is it that God expects, simply speaking? She believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. When God speaks... We should believe. That should be the immediate response to every word of God. Whenever God speaks, we should believe. This was the failure of Adam and Eve in the garden. This is why they plunged all of mankind into ruin and misery. Because they didn't believe God's word and they believed the serpent. God had announced his word. They should have maintained faith in God's word instead of succumbing to the snares of the serpent. They, they succumbed, and that's what brought misery to all of us. Death and sin and every, all, all the evils we see. But Mary is an example of, for all of us that we should believe the moment God says anything. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Let's believe His Word whenever His Word addresses any subject. I consider right all your precepts concerning everything, and I hate every false way. Psalm 119, 128. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Psalm 119, 160. This is the kind of people we should be just like Mary was. And that's why she was blessed. She believed the word of God. We note here, we note here that Mary, she was kept a virgin, according to Matthew chapter 1, and even by implication here, that she was kept a virgin until she gave birth to her firstborn son. We do not teach, the Bible does not teach, the perpetual virginity of Mary. The Bible does not teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. In fact, Mark chapter 6 mentions that Mary had at least four sons and two daughters. Four sons and two daughters, in addition to Jesus. In addition to Jesus. So, she, and they are not cousin brothers and sisters. They were actual brothers and sisters. They were, because Mary and Joseph had normal marital relations after that. So, we ought not to entertain any kind of 
of prayers to Mary or any kind of higher status to Mary than what the Bible gives. She was not sinless, and it was not that she was perpetually a virgin until her death. And she did not um, go up into heaven without death or others. And another false doctrine is that she had no original sin. She had no original sin, therefore Jesus had no original sin. No, the Bible doesn't say any of those things. We ought to esteem Mary as the Bible esteems her, nothing more and nothing less. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Father, we ask that you give us the faith that we've seen here displayed, the faith that Mary and Elizabeth and even Zacharias and Joseph have. We pray that we'll be people like this, that whatever you say is true and whatever you say will happen, may we believe that they will happen. Give us assurance, give us hope, give us peace, give us joy, help us to endure whatever we encounter because, Lord, we have... A, heaven, uh, a heavenly home, and we have things that are unseen. And we believe in the things that are unseen because Jesus has come, He has risen from the dead, and He has demonstrated to be the Son of God with power by that resurrection. So because He lives, we shall live also, and we have what the world does not have. May we persevere in this faith. In Jesus' name, amen.